Hey everybody, my name is Alex and this is Lunchbox Radio. Now, if you welcome, um, I wanted to welcome you first and say, and say, and ask you to go and check out some of our other episodes. Um, and if you haven't checked out some of the other episodes in a while, definitely go do that. The, our most recent episode, Call of the Night, is all about the show over on High Dive, Call of the Night. It is excellent. This is going to be a little bit of a different episode, so if you're looking for something a little bit more what normally of this podcast, and the reason why this is going to be different is because of what we're talking about today. What we're talking about today is a manga. What we're talking about today is a one-volume manga. And what we're talking about today is by a manga author who, yes, is known for writing manga, but he's actually probably one of the better known directors of animation in the world. Um, but yeah, so definitely go check out things like our episode on Psychopath, <coughs> our episode on um, Call of the Night, or one of our Sunday editions. Uh, the last Sunday edition was all about my gallivanting around Anime NYC on um, the on the Saturday day there. So definitely go check those out in the podcast feed in whatever, um, what's it called? In whatever podcast app you're using to listen to me right now. Sorry about that. Um, and on that note, without further ado, I wanted to bring it to what we're talking about today. And that's a little a little novel from a relatively unknown artist um, called Shuna's Journey. A, a little graphic novel from a relatively unknown artist called Shuna's Journey. Now, something that we all forget about um, season, the season leading up to Christmas, really, is that it's not just a season of, like, festive and blah, blah, blah. Actually, none of us forget this because the world won't let you forget now. But it's one of the most consumerist seasons of ever. Uh, it, it is the most consumerist season in the year. It is when Black Friday is. It is when Cyber Monday is. It is when everybody's buying presents for everybody they know. Blah, 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 blah. But what it also is, is it's when everything goes on sale. Therefore, what also happens is people offer things. People save stuff for around this time, and people also also offer up what's the best word for it? Um, what you would consider to be like stuff not for gifts, but for something that you want, like a like a thing you'd want. And one of the many things that came that slid across my eyeballs was massive advertisements a couple like a couple months ago for. On ANN, like they, the publishing company bought out the entire website's like background ad, and it was for um, Hayao Miyazaki's Shuna's Journey. Now, if you don't know anything about this particular one-volume manga, it is from 1983, but it has never actually been translated over in English until like and released until November 1st. So. I took it upon myself to like throw down the twenty bucks and get myself the hardcover volume. I didn't quite know what was gonna show up, but like it's a hardcover book with a book jacket and everything. So it's an exceedingly nice release for this kind of thing. But it's also it is an original manga, not necessarily an original story, but we'll get to that in a second. By Hayao Miyazaki for um it's original manga by Hayao Miyazaki of Studio Ghibli fame of cranky old anime with a mistake grandpa fame. So it deserved a nice release and it got a nice release. It, and also it's only one volume, so you want something that can... What's the best word for it? You want something that can and will... Um be be substantial if you're only going to put out the one volume. 
Now, it was not super clear to me that it was one volume. I assumed it was, but I wasn't sure. It was not super clear to me, not for any fault of like the book itself. By the end of by the end of the manga, you know that it's only one volume. But the thing about it is, it's a publisher who did a really nice job on the release. Kind of fucked up. <laughs> and the reason why I'm going to say this is a really bizarre thing. So, if you are a child of the anime bubble, as I am, as lots of otaku are right now, you remember Tokyo Pop. And the thing Tokyo Pop did was they had a round little circle guy, a little circle robot guy with a little antenna who sat in red. And at the bottom of all their books, on the spine, there was the little circle guy, and then above it, I believe, there was slightly, slightly above it, there was the volume number of the manga. I could literally go get manga and tell you exactly what that layout was, but it's in my basement. So, you, so like, they had their logo on the spine, they achieved logo on the spine, and they achieved volume number at the same time. This is a one-volume book. It is published by a um, company called First Second Publishing, which is a great which is a great play on words because it is like from the very first second that this is allowed to be published here, it is published. But it's also a second run published. It's also being published secondarily in this market because it's the first time it's translated to English. This, this manga has existed since 1983. But what their logo is, is it's, like the one second symbol, which is the colon, the zero, and the one, and it says first second under it. And that on a spine of a manga says to you, this is the first volume. <laughs> it does not say first second. It, it just looks like this is the first volume of a thing, which is not typical for what you see in a one-shot manga. In a one-shot manga, you get the spine, the logo of the company, and no numbers. And I know that for a second probably didn't think that way, but that's the way I read it, and obviously that's the way a lot of people read it, because when I went looking, I saw, as soon as you type in Shuna Journey, Shuna Journey, and then if you type B, it's like volume two, question mark? Because everybody was like, is this, is this it? Like, do, are we getting more? Is there more? And that was just a weird, quirky thing. But here's what I want to talk about the actual manga itself. Because so much of what Hayao Miyazaki has done manga for has been kind of like him doing them after he did the movie or him doing them as like a way to get through his thoughts in order to compile them for doing a movie. Like I believe there's a Kiki Delivery Service manga, technically, but I think that came after the movie. And this is unique because it's not that. Actually, there's, a, I think famously, a Nausicaa manga. This is not that. This is not, this feels very much like he's playing with a bunch of things that he would, that Hayao Miyazaki would make kind of signature moments in his in his films going forward. But it's not it's not that and this is very much a manga that was made without the idea of it ever becoming a film. Because the thing about all the Miyazaki movies even something like Princess Mononoke is there are touches of whimsy to it, to those movies that say that don't turn evil. That at no point try to murder you. And what I mean by that is if you look at um Princess Monoki, for example, the um Kodama, the forest spirits, the little jangly head guys, they never try and murder everybody. They're like an expression of sadness at one point when they're falling out of the trees because they're dying, because the forest is dying. But they aren't they aren't malicious at any point t 
towards the towards humanity as a whole or the main character or any of the side characters. And so and, and also there there's in most Miyazaki movies, there are allusions to the suffering of man, but you don't stare it straight in the face. And both of those things I just mentioned are super present in this manga. You, like you will see, say you will see Hayao Miyazaki having thoughts about things that he doesn't have thoughts about out loud. Or quite as clearly in his in the films that he's created, because and I've talked about this a little bit before, but every time you add more participation to a medium, you create it's you add another layer of it being niched, be, being you, you make it slightly more niche and you expand the opportunity you'll get there because there's a smaller amount of people paying attention to it. So there's a smaller amount of people who scrutinize it. So you can have weirder conversations in it. That's why books, novels are oftentimes super weird. And that's why you see a lot of stuff in anime adapted from light novels. It's because they're like, one of the last frontiers because tons of people read them but also that story that story if it's simplified and shifted a little bit can go way wider and hit a wider audience if you put a, if you put, create that story as an animation so if you look at something like say Dorara Dorara originally was light novel so you had to do all of the like visual work that Dorara the series does for you in your head. And like they can describe as much as they want and I'm sure they did, but there's still some interpretation there. Once Dorara was made, they made hard choices. And one of the funniest um things I've heard lately is about um Video game as about anime adaptations of video games, and somebody was talking about um, Cyberpunk Edge Runners and how much that show is not that video game. Like that show applies a very specific story to it, to the Cyberpunk world that does not exist in the video game. That cannot, that kind of cannot exist in the video game. The way the video game is mapped out for the player. But as a result, the video game doesn't, what's the best word for it? As a result, the anime kind of can't break away from much. And in the case of something like, of a couple adaptations of video games as anime, the directors have full on said, like, no, I will not change the story. Like, I will not fuck with this story. And some of that was probably deference to the sto the original storytellers of the video game. But others of it were deference to, if people are going to watch this, they're going to expect the video game plot. And part of the magic of Cyberpunk Edgerunners is it got to tell its own story. It got to use the puzzle pieces to make a new picture. But when you're dealing with a much more participatory form of entertainment like manga or even more like even more so like novel like novels, you have to make the story. Or if you're reverse engineering something like the Kiki Delivery Service manga, you'd have to choose what parts to bring down as panels and what parts are just in between animation that doesn't matter, basically. But when you're doing an original story, like 
um, or a semi-original or a story that's inspired like Shuna's Journey because Shuna's Journey was inspired by a Tibetan folktale, I believe. Um, actually, I know. I've literally read it on the back of the book jacket. Um, you have a lot of room for interpretation. And in Shuna's Journey, like I said before, you see Miyazaki taking a lot of cues from taking a lot of cues towards what he would make in the future in things like Princess Mononoke, in things like um, in uh, what's it called um, in Nausicaa, in Castle in the Sky, and you look at somebody like Castle in the Sky, and you see those robot, you see the Castle in the Sky robot. You see something like that in this story. And so this story follows a character named Shun, who is a prince of a kingdom in a valley, and this kingdom is is in its waning days. And I think in this, it, the kingdom is in its waning days in the same way that the kingdom is in its waning days in, for Ashitaka in um the beginning of Princess Mononoke. And indeed, by the end of Shuna's journey, like the end of Princess Mononoke, Shun does not go back to his people. The same way Ashitaka does not go back to his village, to his to like the Amishi. It's just kind of like they just kind of leave and never come back. And is this There's an assumption that that all these people that all these people slowly died off or like dispersed or whatever. But all throughout the all throughout this story in Shuna's journey, you see Shuna encountering these villages that are that are already what his village is going to become, which is deserted and dead and just kind of forgotten. And you see. You also see another thing that tells you that, like, this was never thought of as ever being a potential thing for a movie is there's extensive, like, conversation about slave trade and about deep human abuse and, like, fucked up human abuse. Um, early on, there's a, Shuna meets these characters who are clearly cannibals and he has to, like, fight them off in the night. Because he come, he goes to them looking for help, and he realizes, oh shit, these people eat people. I'm gonna go, yo. And then he's camped out, and they come and find him as a midnight snack, and he has to shoot one of their hands off to get them to back off. And then he finds a big old city. He finds like a a very large town. That is essentially a slave auction site. And that's where he meets these two sisters, Sia and her younger sister, I don't believe is given a name, a proper name. But he eventually frees them and the story This this story does what good stories do with the concept of slavery. They don't blame necessarily the world for slavery existing. They blame individual people for being shitbags. And they're like, okay, slavery clearly exists. Like, the people who are perpetuating this are shitbags, but also the world has allowed this to perpetuate. Here's where we're going to make this hero character seem like a hero character eventually liberate them. And I'm not going to give you tons of, like, I'm not going to do a blow-by-blow blow for this. Because, it's, once again, the one-volume manga is 20 bucks. is a beautiful hardcover thing. You should go get it yourself. Um, I will, however, say it has one of the funniest gets for a back-of-the-book back jacket quote ever. It's the fact that it got, you know him, you love him. He's a massive nerd who gave us 
who get, who did the impossible and gave us a live action giant robot movie. That's right. They got Guillermo del Toro to do it back in the book quote. Because once again, Guillermo del Toro is one of us, y'all. It, it, it couldn't be more clear. He made a weird homage to Ava, Gundam, and Godzilla all at once. Because he could and no one stopped him in time. And then he, and then it happened again. Um, but in any case, so you have things, you have elements like a lot of like human on human crime that isn't just like we don't get what we're go going to do to the world. It is like we are consciously eating people or we are consciously going out in the world, enslaving whole villages and then selling those people to other people. And then what's also true here is the kind of like natural existential horror element to this to this story but by like the last third of it. And that mo and those moments are like terrifying. They, they are, they are, if you realize that the forest around you, that, that if you found yourself in a forest, and then you realize the forest around you was created by people dying, dying where they, walking, walking into the distance, dying where they stopped, and then creatures eating them. And then crapping them out and making a forest. Because that's basically what happens. There's a scene where um, Shun finally gets to where his journey is taking him. Where Shun gets to where his journey is taking him. And he's in a forest. And he notices that, like, none of the creatures, none of, like, the, none of the plants, none of the creatures in this forest, none of the bugs, nothing is in any way hostile. Like, he hasn't gotten a bug bite, none of this. And then he comes across those, like, place he's trying to find. But before he does that, he sees this giant creature. And he thinks it's one of the people he's trying to find. One of the people from a civilization that he's trying to find. And it's just, lumbered, it's just lumbering through the forest. Until it stops, it falls down, and then what follows is a description and a like a, a description and visuals of basically the forest eating this giant green person alive, <laughs> just eating it alive. And that's the moment where he's like, "Oh, this place might be bad." And so you have this, you have this story, you have this story that's adapted from a, um, from a, from a East Asian, from a, um, that, I believe, um, from a folktale, from a Taiwanese folktale. And you have these scenes in the story that, Hayami Ibaki is just like completely being like, yo, this is what I think about this. This is what I think about slavery. Slavery is a piece of shit. And like, you should believe so too. That will make you the hero of whatever story you're in if you are the only person to believe slavery bad. But if you see the me, like I said, like I said before, if you see the Miyazaki movie, uh, a not even Miyazaki movie, but even a Studio Ghibli movie, they do not tend to deal with that kind of thing. You get close. You get things like the lepers in um, <coughs> in huh, in Princess Monoki. Actually, Princess Monoki does a good job of feeling all that stuff and then kind of moving past it. Like in Princess Monoki, at some point they're like. 
they say that um, Lady Eboshi buys up the girl of every buys up the contract of every brothel girl she can find, and what that basically means is she has Lady Eboshi has created a workforce by being kind, and this is the thing that makes Lady Eboshi a interesting character and a an interesting character who is not a 110% villain in that film is she's doing something with the wealth she acquired by being an ironmonger. She's doing something with the wealth that she will get from um, from what's it called? From killing the forest spirit. She has plans for that money. And yes, she lives a very comfortable life. But you see that she doesn't necessarily live a life that's so comfortable that she can't afford freedom and the means to keep that freedom. Not the means to be in a different kind of indentured servitude, but the means to keep that freedom for women who are down in their luck, for men who would work, who who wants to work for a living. She has, she is in a very real way in the center of tons of people's lives in a way that if you look at, if you look at the way Ray Boshi is portrayed, I think she's portrayed as being somebody who's doing, who's doing a bad thing for a good reason. In, during a journey, people only do good things for good reasons. It is not a, there is not that, and this probably has to do with it being an earlier work than something like Princess Mononoke. Um, there are no good people doing bad for good in Shuna. There is only good people doing good for good and bad people doing bad for bad. And that makes it a much, although there is, I will say, a hilarious, like, random old man character who feels very much like, um, like, I think his name is Monkey Austin, not Monkey Austin, that's from after the last day of Renner, but very much Billy Bob Thornton's monk character from Princess Monoki, and that he like spends a night and a meal with Shuna, tells him kind of where he needs to go, and then Shuna leaves in the sunset while the monk like kind of peeks out, like, "Oh, you're going there? Okay, cool." And but that character never comes back up. In fact, he explicitly is like, "Yeah, if you go find this place, I am not going to come with you. I will not help you. It's terrifying. No one's come back alive." Good luck, buddy. And I, it's a really it's interest. This is an interesting read for a couple reasons. An interesting read because it's an interesting predecessor to ideas that would be more perfectly fleshed out in things like Prince Monoki, in things like Nautica, in things like Castle in the Sky. Like this this is an appear one an appearance of the long of the long horned red elk named Yakul that they named Yakul in Prince Monoki. But who but it is actually part of a breed of elk named Yakul in Shuna's Journey. It is a predecessor to that monk character I mentioned. It is a kind of look at a predecessor to some to Navika to Navika from Navika Valley of the Wind. It is a kind of predecessor look from the female main character of from Kiki or the female main character of um, Castle in the Sky, or even um, Sophie, or even Sophie from Howl's Moving Castle, 
but it's also but Shuna is very much a um like ar- archetypally a baseline for somebody for a character like Ashitaka and seeing him work all those work work with all those things in kind of a pre before they would become solidified in the film that we all know and love is really interesting but also what's really interesting and once again here he is making a here he is writing a story and illustrating a story that is kind of by design not full not made for a screen not some because it is something that he makes he publishes but that a production house would would probably not touch with a 10-foot pole and even if it did we wouldn't know about it um there's a thing there's a thing for uh what's the best word for it there's a thing for oscar bait oscar bait is a great term um for this the thing for oscar bait like movies and and award bait like movies so a couple years ago there was a show that came on called the red band society and if you've ever seen red band society you know it's terrible (coughs) but the thing about the red band society is it was made by the creator who made glee made by the people who brought you glee and it was a story about kids with terminal cancer kids with cancer that they would always have and if you know anything about award bait shows that screams award bait so you've got tons of incredible actors. You got um Octavia you got um Octavia, what's her name? Um you got people of Oscars in this show. And this show was awful. Another version of that is like you do a big sync piece about slavery. As a bid for an Oscar, twelve years of slave, Django the exception is probably Django Unchained, but 12 Years of Slave was definitely like, oh, we're doing this because we want, we want the man on the pedestal to show up and, like, give himself over to us. Those are very conscious. Those show... Those kind of, like, zoom in on a piece of slavery and make it human. In Shuna's journey, what they're showing is not, what the slavery they're showing is not necessarily based, it's not based in race, it's not based in like an ideology, it's based in, this is a, not even a society, but this is a, this is a world that is on its last, that's on its dying breath, that's on its way out. So much of the background you see of Shuna traveling is desolate, dead, desert, forgotten relics of the past, bones, death. There are not a lot of people around ever until until you see the until you, he happens upon the village that's a slave, that's like a slave trade depot. And he finds what he's looking for there. And he set, and he asks one of the slave traders, where did you get this? And they, and he said, oh, the manhunters, meaning the people who enslave other people, trade, trade with this big thing and they get this back, and we don't know where it comes from. We get this resource back, and we don't know where it comes from. So essentially, there is a top somebody. There is a top somebody who's doing something, and is giving, like, scraps 
to the rest of humanity. And in the in the story, they call them they call it the land of the gods, and they call them the gods. But what you come to find out is that this whole system is by by the end of the story. What you come to find out is that this whole system is like perpetuated by those gods. Those gods are using are are probably all already on their like last leg themselves because they're using human capital to produce this precious commodity that the rest of the world is just barely surviving on. And the whole system is fucked. This this book does lays bare and and has the whole conversation of what something like Twelve Years of Slave is relying on an American history class to do for its viewer. So if you're in, if you're taking history in America. At some point, you're going to learn about slavery. No matter where the fuck you are, you're just going to learn about slavery. That used to be less true, but it is kind of impossible to get past it now, especially in the South. They may teach it way differently, but they will teach you that people were in, where people were owned by other people and it was bad. And if, and even if you don't get that, eventually the internet will tell you that especially in America. But things are different around the world. A perfect example is um, something that, I don't, that an old friend of mine once asked me was, hey Alex, what's, what, what's with the Nazis in Japan? Because if you watch enough Japanese media, you notice there's like a striking amount of references to Nazi culture, to like, especially Nazi uniforms, and the swastika and all this other stuff. And the swastika is a flipped Buddhist symbol. So there's that. But also, and this is a key important point, it's the Buddhist symbol is called manji. It's supposed to like represent world peace. Um, but it's it's so recognized in the swastika that way like, like it, one of the things they do when Americanizing or internationalizing a show now is if the manji appears anywhere they yank it off because they're like, we just don't want to have this conversation for the 900th time. It's a cultural difference that we're going to let exist. That we're going to let, like, die as soon as it gets on to a plane to leave the country. But the, the other reason why that stuff exists, but the big reason that, like, you see a lot of Nazi stuff in like pop culture in Japan is they didn't have the work done that a place like Germany or a place like America had done to make it clear that Nazis bad, that like all of this is bad, that like even even the like even the trappings of it are bad. And if you're using the trappings of it you better, like, you are using, you're playing with fire, you better know what the fuck you're doing. Or you better make them so goddamn evil that you can't question. So a great example of the difference even between America, where Nazis bad, Nazis evil, and Germany, we don't talk about the Nazis because it is such a deep, deep, Deep evil that if you, it's a Beetlejuice scenario where, and we've already said the name two times, where if we say it it's a third time, then oops, Nazis and everybody has, and we all have problems. And there's real rules and restrictions on speech around Hitler, the Nazis, and that kind, and hate speech, especially in Germany, for that reason, because that's where the Nazis happened, y'all. And they are, like, Germany as a country, as a culture, is very much like, listen, man, we fucked up. 
we fucked up and we are determined to never fuck up that way again. And that extends to even things like when Wolfenstein wanted to release in Germany, they had to like completely erase it, erase all the swastikas from that game. And it's a game about fighting the Nazis in the future. They had to do a lot of swastika removal. But what I'm trying to say is that Japan has not had even an American, for the most part, education necessarily about, oh, this shit's bad. Like, this shit, this shit is not a joke. And they're they also an amazingly homogenous society, which means that there's not a whole lot of difference for somebody to like, kind of stand up and be like, hey, um, I'm a brown person. That's not a fun costume for me because the person wearing that would kill me on sight. And so what I'm saying is these... These heavy themes like hate crimes and like slavery and like all this other stuff that America has a huge, have have big feelings about, that other places around the world have big feelings about. Not Not every country has the same feelings about, but there are people in every country who are like, the Nazis are bad fucking news. For example... Um, whereas the Nazis are kind of just an army in the original, in JoJo's part one, the Nazis in Helsing are the bad guys. They are the people trying to destroy the world. And like, Helsing is a, especially in Helsing Ultimate, like, there are no good guys, there are only less bad, bad guys. (laughs) in that show, and as soon as the Nazis show up, the Helsing organization and the Catholic Church are like, no, we'll fight later. We gotta go kill some Nazis. And part of that is done to like, as probably like the creator of that property being like, yo, this is how we should be treating this. It shouldn't be like, a fetish costume for for a joke in a, a romantic in like a rom com anime like Wallflowers, which is a real thing that happened. The female protagonist of Wallflowers at some point is wearing Nazi garb, and you're like, uh, not great. Don't care that you have a whip and big leather boots. Still not great. Um. And that's where I think that Miyazaki's conversation around the world and slavery and the whole system that the world is kind of pointing to is doing in this thing. It is it is having a conversation and is saying like, oh, you think you think that this is okay? Like you you don't know that this isn't okay. You don't know that this like ultra fucked up capitalistic structure is okay. It it isn't okay. Because you don't, you haven't had that conversation. You haven't had the like conversation of that trickle down economics doesn't work. Because why would you? you? You've only ever lived in everybody works for everybody's sake in terms of Japan. Whereas in America, we could say, like, we should work for everybody's sake because it would lift us all up and it would be the best thing for the country. And if I help you and you help me, we both get better. But we're also an individual individualist society. You can tell me to go fuck myself that you're, that you're a Reagan Republican and you think trickle-down economics is perfect and does exactly what it should. And then you need to shut your door in your hut because your wages haven't increased since the 70s. Um, but 
I think that this that this manga is a great does a great job of showing that and using the like system of slavery as the main driver of what's keeping this society kind of even barely running at the edges going. And more than that, in the same way that in um, Battle Age Alita, um, Darum, the like big floating city in the sky, is just it's just casting off its trash into the into the abyss. And the only the only thing that where um, Alita lives is good for is entertainment when they play rollerball because those people can die and they're not family members and it doesn't matter. But everybody else in um, in Dalem, the floating sky heaven city, doesn't really care what happens to like Alita or anyone else. She's got to take the fight to them. But the funny thing about like a person taking a fight to the big people in the sky, like even like Matt Damon's Elysium, which is very much the same fucking thing as. Battle Angel Alita, except nobody wanted to make Battle Angel Alita, but they made Elysium, and I'm sure the pissed off David, David Cameron's two new ends. Um, but he got Alita Battle Angel made, and it's great. But this is a version of that system. And the whole but what the story does differently than Battle Angel is it is it knows that Shuna was born into was born in a very small part of this system, the part that is dying that will ultimately either be captured by the manhunters and then sold for their survival or it will die off. But he but it shouldn't necessarily always be everyone's responsibility to go fight the big evil of the world. I think that's something that people... There's something that people don't understand about, in particular, minorities. It's like, with, and I say this as a minority, as, a, as what I would refer to as a affirmative action superstar... I check all the boxes, um, except for Native, except for Native American, except for um, Native Native Eskimo. Um, we get tired too. We don't want we we. The great quote that I heard that that, that says. A hero isn't brave. A hero is just a person who's run out of options. And what that means is most of the time when you encounter people who are heroes, it's not because they're doing the brave or right thing. It is they're doing the thing that will allow them to continue to live. And when you see like gay people protesting or you see people of color protesting or any number of other like minorities protesting, what you're seeing is you're seeing people who see a very real threat to their lives. A perfect example from my own life. I started doing anime panels promptly after Donald Trump, a presidential candidate, went up on stage and mocked a disabled reporter. The reason I did that was because I said to myself, there needs to be a disabled person on, like, on, like, in front of people presenting somewhere about disability representation because all of a sudden this piece of shit has done what quietly everyone, everyone has agreed we do not do, and that is Make fun of a guy who is probably a brilliant journalist, but also has cerebral palsy. We have agreed we're not going to fuck with that. And we have agreed to make the people who fuck with it, who, who fuck with people who have 
severe degenerative diseases like cerebral palsy, like um, autism, like m like all kinds of mental illness. We have tried to make the people who who fuck with those people, who make fun of those people, into pariahs. And when I saw that on TV, my first thought was, oh, this can't stand. This can't, like, I cannot allow this to continue. I have the ability and the, I have the ability, the talent, and the skill to create a counter to this. Because if this is allowed to echo into the world, who knows what else will fucking happen. And that's the, that's the ethos, if you didn't know, behind the speech laws around the Nazi party, around the Nazis in Germany, is Germany as a government recognizes this is too evil to be allowed to be a thought process that is expressed out loud, ever. This needs to only be an inside thought. We cannot police the inside of people's heads, but we can say, if you put up a sign with a swastika on it, if you put up a sign that says white power in German, if you display your allegiance to the Nazi party, we will come find you as the government and we will punish that because it can't be allowed to exist. We cannot, we cannot allow a foot on that water slide <laughs> of a slippery slope. And if you look at somebody like Kanye West right now, that's why he, that's why he's lost all his business deals. It's because anti-Semitism is the thing that started a world war. And every and not just that, anti-Semitism. It's a thing that started a world war and started the attempt at an extinction of a people. And everybody could do the math. And everybody had the receipts on that. And if you're refusing to do have either one of those down pat, you're part of the problem. And when somebody and this happened, this happened to a couple to a couple um, heads of fast to a couple people in fashion. When somebody is anti-Semitic. The industry is like, well, we never heard of you. Whoop. Oh, I'm sorry, did you have a job? Guess you don't. Guess nobody will take your calls. Guess nobody will mess with you because you you started reading the first you read the first digit of the nuclear code <laughs> into the voice recognition machines. And we can't have that. But the, the danger of that, the danger of that kind of thing, is you can also have the other side. You can have the side that doesn't understand what was wrong. That doesn't understand. You have the you have the scenario that Japan finds itself in, which is Japan was a hostile Axis power. Absolutely, they bombed Pearl Harbor. Absolutely, they've done terrible shit in the world like terrible shit but they are also the first first and only country to experience not once but twice the use of a nuclear weapon on it and on its people if you want to have a fun cry time you can go watch in this corner of the world you can go watch or read barefoot again you can go watch grave of the fireflies and you can even for a second hold the burning sadness hold a piece of the burning sadness that is what largely America did to Japan in World War uh, basically to end World War II but also that creates a culture that says oh well America's wrong and like and we need to be our own version of like 
separatist and deeply right-wing and deeply a-liberal because the welcoming of other cultures inevitably means the welcoming of American culture, and they tried to bomb us out of existence. And every once in a while, you get an animation director like um, Hayao Miyazaki or like, um, what's his face, who directed um, uh, Shinoshiro Watanabe, who directed um, Cowboy Bebop, will kind of like fly off the handle and oops, make a deeply super liberal commentary on what they're worried about in the world. And the, the like backgroundness, the background story of Shuna's journey shows you what Hayao Miyazaki thinks of the capitalist system. But then Shuna as a character and ultimately Sia as a character in his love, who becomes his love interest, you see that they take it upon themselves not to deal with that. Because they can't. Because, it's like, so often adults are like, oh, the next generation will save us. They will fix it. We're assuming, but adults, now me included, are assuming a lot there. We're assuming that the kids will be, that the kids won't, will survive until then. We're assuming that we won't make something so big and complicated that it will ever get fixed. And I think, like, we're seeing with, we see it apparently all the time with the economy, there's so many weird little bizarre things about it that are just fucking weird and bad. And as soon as you flip one stone over and find a bad thing, you realize you're in a you're on a riverbed. It's nothing but stones that need turning over. And a lot of them will have bad things under them. And at some point you just put the stone down where you found it. You get up out of the riverbed. And you just take a nap. Because to stare at it is too much. And it... There's a great character of a, like, unnamed old lady in this, in this thing towards the end. And she's just kind of cranky. She's just kind of a cranky asshole. Like when it comes to Sia's happiness, she's just also kind of crank, cranky asshole, but she's okay with Sia being happy. And she's just like, yeah, go be happy with the guy who saved you, you and your sister's lives. Like, I'm depressed you didn't find a, a man from this village. But you go do your thing. I shouldn't be your problem. And it's... This, this, this thing, Shuna's journey, feels such like a rough, almost like a rough draft of what Princess Mononoke would eventually be. That it's kind of crazy, but it's also a in the same way that so much of Spirited Away is about the environment, so much about. Um, So much about Kiki's delivery is about creativity and creative burnout and that stuff. This is really about, like, seeing the horrors of the world and deciding to live and deciding to live in it anyway, and deciding deciding to live in it the best way you can, because. You know, Shuna can't fix the fact that, and spoiler alert here, I've been pretty, like, minor on the details here. Shuna can't fix the fact that a giant moon face
go to the middle of fucking nowhere, pukes out a bunch of green giants, and then speeds off while those green giants come out of this, like, fleshy cocoon mass and barf wheat to create fields for harvest. He can't fix that. But what he can do is make sure that, but what he can do is save two young girls, two women his, two girls, one around his age, from slavery. He can't save every slave, but he can save two. He can remove two from the system. That is the most good he knows he's capable of, and he does it. And then he, and when he tries to do the thing he tried to do, when he tries to do the world-changing thing he was trying to do, he succeeds, but he succeeds almost, he succeeds almost in spite of his best effort. The world comes down all at once on him in this story. It rips him limb from limb in a way that leaves him scarred and almost feral. And he does succeed, but he also is very much like, I will never do this again. Like, when it comes time for the world to to be saved again, I will not be the one doing the saving. And I think that that gets at something that's very true of young people and the old woman in in the latter part of the story also gets at it pretty well. Like, we shouldn't depend on young people. We shouldn't assume we'll depend, that we can depend on young people to get us out of the mess. Because... And some, if you're a millennial and you're listening to this, first off, hi, I feel it too. Yeah, I know, it's bad. It's not going away. Um, second off, the thing that people don't get about most millennials and why we're so dark and sad and fucked up is because we kind of saw the empire die in a way. We... We saw the world change. We saw the world crack open like an egg and boil alive. Like it, we saw the deeply bad things and we are still seeing deeply bad things. But like, if you're, if you're an elder millennial, like I would be considered, you saw the attack on the World Trade Center. You saw the financial crisis. A few, a few, uh, what seems like a short time after the financial crisis, you saw it all set, all the dominoes set themselves up again, exactly the same way. You saw, you've now seen a pandemic. You've got, you're now seeing the lasting economic effects of that pandemic. You see the world all fucked up all the time. And sometimes you just want to, you know, just move to a cabin on the cliff in the middle of nowhere, not talk to anyone ever except for your best friend. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Kie. And and I have I have proposed that to Lauren, and Lauren, everyone's a while texting me. She's like, "So, how are we looking on that cliff house? How are we looking on going full commie house and never talking to anybody else except for each other ever? Because I could go for that right now. And I get that feeling. Also, this, I really appreciate especially the end of Sheena's journey because it, it acknowledges that as an option and as a, and as a thing that's a viable choice. There's a choice that you can make that's not that no one should judge you for because if you listen 
if you want to go steal wheat from the big green spaceman, and then as soon as you, as soon as you touch it, every fiber in your body screams with pain, be my guest, bucko. So let's see if you make it out alive. I did. I'm never going back. Fuck that noise. And it's kind of the end of this story. And it's not, it's, it is a happy end, but it is like a small happy end surrounded by the te big, bad, terrible world. In the way that, in the way that Edge Runners, Cyberpunk Edge Runners, once again, if you want to listen to my podcast about Cyberpunk Edge Runners, you can find it in the podcast feed in the app you're using to listen to me right now. Um, but that story is a deeply sad story in the middle of a big bad world where there are probably many, 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 many good stories. We just trigger to not tell the choose to tell on. This Shuna's journey is the reverse of that. And the same punk that's in the same way that Cyberpunk world is in conversation with the real world. This Shuna's world is in conversation with the real world. Not quite not in quite a like one to one way. I mean we don't have we don't necessarily have super rankings like real, I'm sure the nightly news will prove me wrong one night. Um, but we do have that economic structure where we're all putting tons in and a little bit and, and not a whole lot is trickling out. And I just, I, I, I found this to be an immensely interesting read. If you, Want to pick it up? Um, you could still pick it up over at Amazon. Um, that's where I'm seeing it listed. It's um, you'll know it when you see it. It's got what it's got what looks like a Russian version of Ashitaka with a gun on Yaku on the cover. It's called Shuna Journey. It's by obviously Hayao Miyazaki. His name is literally bigger than the name of the thing he published because. What the fuck is Shunin's Journey? Oh, it's written by Hayao Miyazaki. Sign me up. Um, but on that note, if you like this podcast, new episodes of it come out every Thursday and every other Sunday. Thursday is shows like this. It's about a show property. Very rarely it's about manga. Um, but it's about a specific thing, like a series or a film or a manga. But... Um, the Sunday episodes are more metatextual. They're about anime culture. They're about anime, like the, the anime industry. They're about animation. Sometimes they're about anime fandom. They're very metatextual. Um, but I have been Alex. This has been Lunchbox Radio, and I will talk to you. I think next Sunday. I think yeah, Sunday next Sunday is a new Sunday show. I've got a whole schedule now, so I pretty organized. Woohoo! But I'll talk to you on Sunday.